Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Schools offer a unique opportunity to both identify young people with mental health difficulties and work with them in the preventative intervention and support space. There's so much that can be done in schools so that we can stop watching students fall through the crack and start making a difference in changing the mental health statistics. Join me, joining me this week to discuss how we can better implement mental health and well-being in our schools is this week's podcast guest, Renee Knapp, who is also an ambassador for the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association. Renee Knapp is an independent consultant and educator who is heavily engaged in implementing mental health strategies at a school and community level. She's a founding member and current chairperson of a local community mental health action team and is also currently the deputy principal at a district high school in the southwest of WA. Renee is widely recognised as a leader in mental health and wellbeing initiatives and was recognised for her work as a finalist in the WA Teacher of the Year Awards. Stay tuned as Renee delves into the the role schools have to play in youth mental health and why the role of educators is so important and shares insight into what schools and educators can do to improve student mental health and well-being. Renee, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story and some time with us on our listeners for on our podcast show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Renee, firstly, thanks to WA for letting you out over here to the East Coast. (laughs) You guys have been isolated over there for quite some time, but welcome to the East Coast. And how's it feel to be leaving the borders of WA with some confidence that you can get back home? Well, it was a little nerve-wracking the week before I left, worrying trying to stay away from COVID. But I was very excited that I finally got to be here. It's been a long wait wanting to come to one of the conferences. Yes, came to the sunny Gold Coast and... (laughs) experienced weather like I've never seen before. (laughs) I know, it's just relentless, isn't it? But no, it's very exciting and nice to know that I can actually, it's actually, yeah, it's been nice to realise that there's a world out here, so. Renee, you are an ambassador of Australia New Zealand Mental Health Association. Thank you for your services as well with that. But let's just go back to your professional career. Tell us a bit about you professionally over the, well, since you... When I first got into school. Yeah, so I've been an educator for over 25 years. 
and really started my career, went up to the north of WA and worked with 80% Aboriginal kids in South Hedland for about five years. And that really opened my eyes to the behavioural side of things and really probably developed my passion in terms of student behaviour and what. Then I married a farmer, so made my way down the west coast and ended up in a small rural town in the southwest of Western Australia and eventually worked my way into becoming a deputy principal. And that's where I really became quite passionate about mental health and well-being. I'd had my own experience with depression and one of my kids had also had anxiety at quite a young age and some quite serious mental health issues at a young age. And it became really apparent to me that we could be doing things a lot better in schools. And so my role as a deputy principal became heavily laden with student mental health and wellbeing and behaviour. And I then became a bit of an advocate, I suppose, because a few things went parallel at the same time. We were, it was about six years ago, I was um, in charge of a behaviour team and I really wanted mental health on the agenda. But being in a rural town in Western Australia, the thought of asking the staff to join another committee, they may have fallen apart. So at the time, um, there was a system called Mind Matters, which is now BU. So there was Mind Matters for high school and Kids Matters for primary school. And I approached Mind Matters and said, I'd like to take this, instead of trying to improve mental health at a school level, I'd like to actually look and get our doctors involved and the local police and our sporting groups and health practitioners and see how we can put our heads together around mental health. Because what I was finding is that at a school level, when we were supporting kids in terms of behaviour and mental health and wellbeing, we'd often get stuck at the school walls. We'd, we'd know what needed to be done, but if perhaps parents weren't keen or there was limitations, we would get stuck and we'd just have to watch these kids fail and fall, which was really quite distressing. So at that time, I co-founded a what I, we call a community mental health action team. And that really led to developing a process of getting sectors to cross over and work together in order to make change happen. So we worked with the Mental Health Commission, wrote a community wellbeing plan. And what I what started to happen was I went out and I was getting a little we were getting a little bit of attention for what we were doing and a few other communities were interested to hear what we were doing and how they could make a difference. So I felt instead of just reinventing the wheel every time someone came, I really started to document, well, how do you actually bring sectors together to make change happen? So that whether you're in the southwest of Western Australia or whether you're in the eastern states or whether you're in the middle of the country or overseas, wherever it might be, you can apply this process to bring the sectors together. So really that led me... I had my passion for the school side of things and I had my passion for the community type of things. And what it's led me to do is to really develop a process for within a school, how to how to make change happen in the area of student mental health and wellbeing, and within a community, how to bring those different sectors together, such as education, law enforcement, sporting groups, community groups, small business, et cetera, et cetera, health practitioners, et cetera, et cetera, and how that can happen. Because what I find happens in both schools and communities, in through my work as a deputy principal, I suppose, and my role as a chair, is that people know what they want to happen. They know they want to move away Away from a siloed approach. They know they want to create a culture of wellbeing in a school, but they don't know how to get from here to there. Mm. And that's, I suppose, what I've been developing is that process is how to take schools or communities from one space to the other. So I guess my work's really 
my, my deputy role still sits as, like, I, I'm very much involved in student mental health and wellbeing and the student services side of things, but I want to be able to affect change and help people do this wherever they are is really where it's led me to, I suppose. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a journey, that's for sure. <laughs> you summarise it so quickly, but I think it's, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it wouldn't, you would, it wouldn't have been a smooth process going through this. You would have come up against your fair share of challenges and and road humps. Tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced. Trina. I think, I think I have we I have come up with challenges, but I think that I'm a really big believer that when we do something, we need to do it well, and I think. Sometimes you get one chance with an audience. You know, you think about staff, uh, a school, and when you bring people together, their time is precious. And when you do it, when you bring people together to make change happen, you need to have a clear pathway for what it is that you're trying to achieve and you need to bring people along on the journey. And same with a community. So I think a big part of doing this is the thought process that's gone into doing each of these steps before I do it rather than doing it and then mm. thinking that, it, have I got it right? Yeah. Thinking about it first. I do think one of the challenges in the community space was, I suppose, resistance from people seeing that it's an issue at first. If I use um, my local town as an example, when we ori- originally got our heads together and started thinking about what needed to happen, there wasn't necessarily the support at a shire level to start with. We have an amazing shire now. They're just incredible and, and it's totally changed. But what it meant is that we really needed to think about and figure out what we needed. And then where we were implementing this, we had the most incredible support from the community. We, did, we at the time really identified that youth was an issue and that we needed to work on the youth space in our town. And we also needed to work on bringing people together to create a sense of belonging and connection because it had been lost. And so we'd started developing this shared understanding of mental health. We started developing this whole idea of mental health literacy and the community suddenly went, you know what, this is really important. We need to pay attention to this. And our small town raised $25,000 to employ someone for two days a week so that we could take the work we were doing and actually action it with the youth in our town. And that was mind-blowing. You know, it was really quite incredible. That's amazing. Is it still going today? It is going today and it's actually what's happened since then is we've then worked with the Mental Health Commission and we've worked with uh, WI Health Alliance and brought all these partners in that are beyond our, like Mm. two to three hours away from us to find, because we were finding another issue we had was that we didn't have good support pathways when people were struggling with their mental health. So we had to be creative. Now it's all good and well for us to put that onus on the health department or the health practitioners but we thought why don't we put our heads together and actually figure out what needs to happen so if if a person in this town tries to ring a support platform are they going to get the the help they need okay maybe not let's talk to this person make sure it happens so I think that it was about ensuring that what we needed was going to be achieved so people could see the outcome that was really really important that they could see the benefits and then what happened was that we now have taken our two-day-a-week person and we're actually in the process of evolving and we're looking at maybe having four positions We've got a grant writer now. We've been able to access probably over $100,000 worth of grants in the last year. And that's purely because we took the time to see that we needed someone to do that job. And now we're looking at sponsorship and things. And I passionately believe this is something that every community can do, whether you're in a rural area or a city. Because cities might be different and not have that same community feel, but they do have hubs of community or hubs of 
areas that work together. And I just think we're at a time where, you know, I've listened to the conference the last two days and it's very apparent that there's a passion for us to work across sectors. And my passion is helping people know how does that happen? How do you actually make that happen? And you might not have priorities of youth or support pathways. You might have priorities of flooding and how to deal with the trauma that's come from that or whatever it might be. And you can still do that and make it relevant to your area. It's like you mentioned, I guess the people really want, they want the outcome and, but they just need to know what steps are taken and what order. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And so a big part of what you do is also, because I mean, there is a lot of services out there. It can be overwhelming when you're looking for help as a consumer, let alone trying to set things up from a framework point of view in a Mm -hmm. town to try and create the initiative and, and drive awareness and education for mental health and wellbeing. Tell us a bit about that and the importance of that collaboration Well, or firstly identifying which services you really need to be able to use and then also then the collaboration and trying to bring people to the table. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think it's really important not to rush that process. I think that... It's probably the process that gets rushed the most. People want to get to the action. They want to get to the action. But when when I've put this in place, I've spent a year really getting that team right because I think it is vital that you – now, you've used the word services, but I actually think services are part of it. But I think you actually need to think about – who are the people, first of all, who are passionate about giving their time? Because initially it's about giving some time and putting heads together. Mm. But it's about thinking about who has an impact when it comes to things around mental health. Without a doubt, our government services, the police, the education and the health. So the first places we're going to is our local schools, our um, local police stations, our local doctor and uh, psychologist or whoever is available. And it's then a matter of talking to people and not everyone's going to be as passionate about it as others, but we find people who've got an interest. I think it's really important to think about where people find their sense of belonging connection. So sporting groups, community groups, anything that might exist that can um, bring people together. Because I think we often think that when bringing people together, we need to have all the the service providers and the sectors. But it's actually about thinking about we need to have people who are going to think about Indigenous cultural issues and bring that to the table. We need to think about people who are going to bring inclusivity and the, you know, all of the different communities and different genders. And we need to have representatives from student voice and youth representatives. We need to consider our aged population. One of the issues that came up for us was that we wanted to actually let our older population in the town provide their wisdom to the youth because they'd kind of been forgotten. So I think that when you're thinking about that group of people, it's about thinking about who could come onto this group that can actually have conversations in order to make change happen. And it might not be perfect at the start and that can evolve. But the other thing I would say is it's really, really, really pivotal to choose a really well thought out chairperson. Because I believe that, and I probably shouldn't say that because I'm the chair of my committee, but, (laughs) but I do think that the chair plays a role I think of the chair a little different to most committees. I think the chair's role is to determine the agenda based on what it is that needs to be driven and to drive that movement. They're the person, whether it's a committee that's like this community mental health, whether it's a committee on the school mental health side of things, whether it's a committee on 
you know, the local bowls thing, whatever mm. it might be, that person who's a chairperson is the driver. They don't have to do it all, mm. but they've got to keep it moving and they've got to ensure that everybody on that team's being heard. And I say that not lightly because, as you might have noticed, I do enjoy a chat <laughs> and often, I'm often given fantails at a staff meeting to keep me quiet. But <laughs> I think because of that, it's my job to make sure every single person at that meeting is heard. And it doesn't have to necessarily be through voice. It might be through creative use of post-it notes or whatever but those meetings every meeting you should come away with a sense of achievement because if all you're doing is meeting and talking about the problems then there's really not much point well and the other thing is renee that a lot of meetings can end up in a lot of chatter like you mentioned but also you get waylaid you get talking about distracted on different topics and next minute you're talking about all these other things unrelated to what you're talking about. So It's interesting you say that. I've, I I actually implemented a strategy once called a parking lot for that exact reason because people are de- – they're coming together. They're excited. Yeah. They've got things they're passionate about. But if you've got an agenda and you're trying to be mindful of time – you know, a parking lot that you can come back to and people can scribble their stuff down and come back to it. You know, there's that's this is why I say that year for setting up your team is really important because it might be that once you've set up your team, you spend two or three months figuring out how we're going to make it so that mm. our communication gets out to everybody, so that we respect each other's beliefs and not – and I say this with respect – not airy-fairy, oh, how are we going to do this, but really – genuinely so that that team is sustainable and people don't burn out on it and feel that their time's not being valued. So the parking lot idea is really a metaphor for just putting the ideas it's down. Just, it's literally just a piece of paper and you're putting ideas down on okay, it. So they bring something up and say, well, yep, we'll yeah, park that. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And address it at the yeah, end. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the role that schools play in youth mental health and why educators are an important role. I think that obviously they're, they're doing a lot already, educators, so I'll be interested to see your thoughts on this because it feels like they're already <laughs> under-resourced and no time and, and that sort of thing. So how do, how do we help this be a priority on what they're doing? Absolutely. Amazingly good question. Look, I think schools are exceptionally stressed. I think that they're trying to manage and cope and do the best they can. But I think we need to look at this problem a little bit differently. I think there's some amazing programs out there that have been developed, but I think programs are one piece of the puzzle. And I think we need to actually step back and apply a process to actually creating a culture of wellbeing. And that could take three to four years to develop. But I think that exact process is about we need to start thinking about, okay, what is it that we want to achieve? If we want to achieve improved student mental health and wellbeing, there's a lot more than just mental health. We need to think about behaviour. We need to think about mental health. We need to think about the digital space and the online world. And that encompasses consent and pornography and protective behaviours and online social media and bullying and all those sorts of things. We need to think about student voice. We need to think about staff development and skill development and staff wellbeing. And we think need to think about how we're going to monitor and and on in an ongoing manner see what's going on and finance it. There's a lot in that. And I think my problem is is that for a lot of schools, and I've seen this in WA, there's an amazing program that was introduced three or four years ago called Mental Health Project in Schools, where schools were given for four years and teachers had to be trained in gatekeeper suicide and youth mental health first aid and then implement a social and emotional wellbeing program. Now, that was a very well-meaning, great initiative from the government 
But it, the thing is, we've got to go beyond that. If all we do is put in a social and emotional program, we're just scratching a little bit of the surface. We, if we want to change the culture of the school, we need to be thinking about how is it that kids come to student services? How is it that they we recognise what's going on and we keep them going? You know, one of the strategies that I talk about when I look at improving student wellbeing is that instead of having a behaviour plan, instead of having an academic plan, let's create a student engagement plan that actually goes, right, they've come to us because they're not doing their homework, but what's going on for them behaviourally? What's going on in their family life? What's going on in, do they have any interactions with the police? Do they have any, are they joining a, a sporting club outside of school? And this is where these two areas cross over, I think, a little bit. But I think it's really important that if a school wants to have a long-term sustainable change, they need to do it in a way that encompasses these areas. So I guess with what I've been talking about with community is I developed that exact same process because once again, schools know what they need to do. They know where they want to be. They just don't know how to get there. So I've tried to map out if you're trying to do that, what is it that you need to consider? Because there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that have got to come together. Well, and that requires resources and, and you've also got other priorities as well that you're trying to deal with. So I guess, I mean, I think I don't think anyone would argue against the, the fact that it's important. Tell us around about how they what, – what are some what are some programs, not specific programs, but what are some things that you're seeing? Because it can be quite – it's quite busy out there with a lot of different people that can come into your school. They talk about cyberbullying. Some will talk about, you know, depression, anxiety, about mental health and general awareness around that. I mean, is it is it what you're talking about is stepping back anyway before that stuff and saying, well, really, what are we trying to achieve? And what are the pieces we need to put together? Because it may be those things, but it may be an overarching program or a framework that's already in place, like the BU that we just need to tap into and, and just roll that out. I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, I How think do you that, do that? I think that's exactly right. What you said was that... I think we actually need to – we have – there's so many amazing programs. There's so, but, but, you know, schools are drowning in incursions and excursions. Yeah. And the problem is when one comes along, y you want to jump on it because you know it's an issue for your students. But what we need to do is take a step back and not stop those programs, but we need to step back and go, right – What's actually going on for our students? Let's talk to the students. Let's collect some data. You know, one of the things I did um, once with behaviour was give the, kids, the teachers a map and say, I just want you to highlight on the map where you think the hotspots are and what you think happens there. And then I gave it to the students and did the same thing. And wow, that was the most powerful piece of data to see the differences between what the students and the kids thought and what was actually going on that we didn't know about. So I think that... First of all, you've got to figure out what problems are and then you can actually put into place programs that instead of being a one-off, so say for example the problem is around boys in your school and they're having they're being quite aggressive, they're having you know a lot of issues with developing into manhood and, and you've tapped into a program like Tomorrow Man or some of the great programs that are around. You can then follow it up. It's not a one-off thing. You can follow – they come in and because you've thought about the student services process and how that will flow on and what's going on with behaviour and all these other things, it then becomes a something that you can see and hopefully make a change with because I think the danger in having many programs come in is they come and go and there's no effect. Yeah. So really – 
you know, we're in a way wasting our time. And yes, it might get through to some kids, but if we actually have a culture where there's, we know how kids are identified when they're struggling. We have a process for talking to parents when they come in concerned about their child. And we've thought about the underlying things that exist. You know, a simple strategy such as our often our deputy principals and our student services people or our principals have a kid come in. It might be that as a school, you've thought about what are the things that we're all going to give so there's a consistent thing that we can give to a student or to a parent when they're struggling or needing to know what to do it's and I think that word framework is exactly it I think we've got to think about applying a framework that then can be matched to suit the individual needs of a student and I think what you mentioned earlier was around about the actually engaging the students and asking them rather than thinking you know what they want but almost back to the co-designing mm-hmm. getting them and, and getting their input so that you're not uh, assuming and designing a program that's really what you think they want instead of what they really need i think that's so true and it's funny because i was always years ago i hated data i thought i oh, just it's not my cup of tea well what i've come to realize is if we actually are really purposeful with what we find out and what we do with that information, it means that what we put in place has a significant chance of being successful. And I think it doesn't matter whether it's youth co-design or whether it's community co-design, we have to hear from the people that we're trying to achieve the outcomes for. for. Yeah. yeah. So how do we do this? What, what have we got? We've got student engagement programs, student voices, sense of belonging, connection. What are, what are the ingredients that we need to try and get this right? In a, in a school setting? Yeah, in a school yep. sense. Yeah, so look, I very much think, as I said, I, th- I, I think there's we really need to start from a shared understanding of mental health. I think too often we don't take the time to understand that everybody on a staff in a school comes at mental health from a very different perspective. Some are really closed off to, to hearing about it either because of an experience they've had or maybe a lack of experience that I've had. Give a perfect example. I've got a wonderful, wonderful mother and she's she was a registered nurse and I myself had gone through depression and she said to me one day, she said, I have no idea how to support you. You know, she said, I, and she had done all the things that people typically do. Oh, you'll be okay. Everything will be fine. And it wasn't till later on when we'd gone through the journey, she said, I've learned so much and I realise where I've come from and I think that that really opened my eyes to I think that as a driver when we're driving change in schools we really need to start from the staff point and just understand there's reasons why they come from where they come from so starting with a shared understanding getting them to be part of it so they own the process so it's not just oh here comes the deputy trying to implement another initiative that we don't want to be a part of and of course shared understanding with the students and the parents so they get to help you know it it might be an interesting shared understanding but certainly that point I think we must have a checklist that gives us the whole picture of the process now I myself have developed one because I got tired of never having one that was just right enough so that's what I did and I'm very happy to share that with people but I think that's really important and one because it gives you the vision but it also provides accountability for a team it provides a spot to be able to go for agenda items and keeps that chairperson being able to drive the initiative. I think 
you must have some consideration of belonging and connection. I think schools are really great at creating belonging and connection, but I think we actually need to plan for it because not every kid is gets their belonging and connection from sport. We need to have varied options for belonging and connection so that we can do different things. So I think that's really important in relationships. I think we need to think carefully about the student services process not just who's on the team but actually how does a kid get there are we going to engage some outside health um, providers I know that in the school I've worked at we made a relationship with our CAMS provider because we were just seeing a real need and we wanted to find a quicker pathway to get to this person rather than just waiting till a you know a terrible outcome happened so really thinking about that and developing those student engagement plans I think it's absolutely important to forward think critical incidents We had a great talk this morning from um, the manager from Headspace and I think that actually thinking through what are we going to do if this happens rather than waiting till it happens is a really good foresight and helps prevent problems that can occur. I think absolutely thinking about staff wellbeing but authentically thinking. I I feel like every staff member rolls their eyes when, oh, here's another session on wellbeing. (laughs) Probably across every industry. But We need to think about what's actually causing our staff stress and what can we do to alleviate that and also to think about how do we encourage teamwork and problem solving and, you know, good things that are important for wellbeing and feeling valued that's not just a little prize drawer or whatever it might be. We've got to think in a different space. And then I really, really think we need to be thinking about then how do we pull all the different areas together to create a culture of wellbeing. So not just a culture of wellbeing we think's happened, but actually a long-term sustainable thing. And that can only be written when we've started going, how, what are we doing in mental health? What are we doing behaviour? I probably haven't talked enough, but absolutely when we're making change, we need to tie in how do behaviour and mental health cross over because they are undoubtedly linked and I think schools often struggle with how to how to cross those two over. So I think actually planning for that consciously through student services, student engagement, things as simple as if your behaviours that you might be encouraging, I've, I've very much used a positive behaviour model, but if your behaviours are respectful, resilient, striving for success, well, resilience allows you to actually teach dedicated stuff on resilience when it comes to mental health. So really thinking about that and then pulling that all together to see how does that work and with these core values that we have as a school now, how does that drive our employment? Are we looking for team? Are we looking for teachers to come onto our team that are going to be interested in learning, that are going to be team players, that yeah. are going to be supportive? So I think it just it all has to tie together at the end at that point, if that makes sense. I mean, it's, there's I mean, there's a lot to it, but it's important to get it right, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> And you can see, uh, I mean, how are we measuring this? Look, I think that that comes back to that data and I think that actually has to be determined by the team. I think that right at the forefront in that first year, before we even get started to doing the actions, we need to go, how are we going to measure our success and how are we Mm. going to measure it in an ongoing manner? Because I think a lot of things that happen, we do it at the start, we do it at the end because we think, oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) We need to be doing it 
all the time. And I think we've got to be creative. We've got amazing tools such as now that schools, I'm not sure if um, the Eastern States is the same, but it, over in the, they probably are because they were miles ahead of us through teams, but over <laughs> in the West we were, we use OneDrive a lot, we use um, all those so- sorts of things. We've got Microsoft Forms. It's the most powerful free tool mm. that allows us to collect information from our students anonymously and collate it for us. And it's it's such a simple tool that so many people go out, they outsource to try and find something, yet it's sitting there. So I think the team needs to think about what's relevant for their context. So I think data is a really important consideration, but it must be localised and made to be in a realistic way that's going to work. Because like I know from a farming community, if I send a survey to the dads, None of them are going to do it. Mm. <laughs> but if I think about collecting it when there's a, a sundowner or something like that, it might be a lot more achievable. That would be understandable. That, that's, that's certainly how it works. Do you think, how do you think we go from the school yard around this plan? And is it the fact that you're starting with a whole community approach at the start to try and have that? Or is, are you doing the school one first? And then we're going to, once we've got that set, we're now going to the community to say, Let's get the law enforcement, let's get the doctors, the medical, let's get the, you know, the rest of the sort of the sporting community organisation. I think that really depends a little bit on the context of where you're doing it. I did them both simultaneously, not because I planned to, but because it just happened that way. I think it depends on where you're at. And I think that's the beauty of having that implementation checklist is that if you start one, so say, for example, you're at a school and you have no idea where to start a community one, but you can start doing something in a school, well, that's where you start. If you're someone who's a health practitioner who really thinks there's value in working across into education, then you start working across that way. I think a lot of these initiatives come from passionate people who want to see change happen. And, you know, this is where, and this is like I'm merging into this sector, is that I want to be able to go out and help people do this. Like I want to help them get those things started. But I think that it's about thinking where your school's at and what's happening at the moment. I don't think there's any problem with doing the community one before you've done the school one because it might be that that allows you to do it creatively. But if you feel that I'm just not confident in that space, well, then the school spot starts first. I think it can really happen either or and I think it probably depends a little bit on the people that you've got to work with. Yeah, and you're right because you do need that passionate person that's driving everything, can keep people on task but also really leading that. And it, and it, that's probably the most important piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Really, it? I, it honestly is. And I think there's – I mean, looking at this conference, there is no lack of passionate people. It's about giving them the tools they need to actually be able to make that happen. And then they can be the one driving the change. And so let's then talk about Think, think Effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how is that now affiliated with what you're doing so today. pretty much Think Effective is very much me take, me helping schools, me helping communities make this change happen. So it's still in its infancy, but at the moment the way it works is that I've got – people can become part of my community and they can access all of these tools. I've been blogging about how to do it step by step so that mm-hmm. people can take it away and do it. But I'm also available to come and spark – like if you know – if people know that they've got they, – they know they need it in their school or they know they need it in their community but they have no idea how to get people excited about it, you know, I can come and help them do those sorts of things. But I can also help from a side point of view because I 
I believe that change doesn't happen from me coming in and doing it. It happens because someone who's in that place, in that school or the community, they can be the driver and I'm that person on the sideline that can coach them to help them to get there. So I think sometimes people like to be able to do it themselves and have ownership over it and I think often passionate people want to be the one driving it. They just need those those tools to be able to do it. And I think that's where my consultancy comes into place is that if people just want the tools, they can do that. But if they want someone on the sideline to help them, they can do that. And if they want someone to do it for them, well, that's available too. But I guess the reason I developed it is because I just want to see change happen. I want to see schools and communities doing this better. And so do you have um, any results at the moment on how it's improved in the stuff that you guys have done? Oh, look, we've got – I have. I unfortunately don't have anything with me, but but, but I do have – yeah, very much picture, so. you know, that it improves engagement. Oh, absolutely. So the – at a school level, it has completely changed the way that we process our culture. And my principal is a per- perfect example. The cultural change shift in our school has been quite dramatic. Just going from improving behaviour or improving mental health to actually everybody using, like in our literacy program, we have the the undercurrent language of mental health and behaviour is sitting there. The outcomes for our students have been quite incredible. You know, I could talk about kids that just even in the last couple of weeks, just the the difference it's made. And we've got some quite clear data around that. But in terms of a community level, it's been quite incredible to watch. You know, I talked about raising that $25,000, but we've now got a community that we're actually, we've got our incredible project officer, who was our person we employed. We had an original person, Sam Curran, who was just amazing. And then she had to move on and we had a new lady come in, Belinda Meehan, and she was really incredible. We're now... The work in the community has been very focused, as I said, on youth and it's been focused on support pathways and bringing people together. We're currently writing our new plan and we're now looking, our project officer Belinda Meehan is now working with the wool industry because we've identified through work, her work through what we've done as a community mental health team has led to us talking to the shearers and actually working with, we want to develop a program. There's a program, I don't know if you guys have it over here, called Good Sports, which is basically improving sporting clubs in terms of developing the messages around drug and alcohol. Well, we're now looking through what we affectionately call ComHat at developing a program around shearers and how they can look after their mental health, how they can see career pathways, assistance with drugs and alcohol all these sorts of things mm-hmm. and that's been driven by what's happened through that community mental health group so it's really quite significant but that isn't to say so we've as we finish up our our three-year community well-being plan we're just picking it up again but we've finished off with a, a huge amount of data we've had really good supporters through healthway and the regional arts programs through haywire grants and all those sorts of things and so we've collected a lot of data around that but before we move into our next program once again the first thing we'll be doing is even though we've got preliminary ideas about shearing and looking at our aged group and all these different things, the first thing we're going to go do is talk to our stakeholders and talk to the people that are actually going to be impacted by the outcomes and go, what is it that you want to see? Because much as we've done it mm-hmm. and we think we know what's right, we just can never assume that. So I think that it's that constant cycle of data collection and moving on and that sort of stuff. So. And then the way you do it can also be different, right, for the how you're going to roll it out to a shearer versus how oh, you roll goodness, it out yes. to a, you, <laughs> For a start, I'm not going to go in there. Yeah, right. I you know, I mean, the, that's exactly right. And this is where I think it's got to be 
done well so that it fits any context because we would be so silly to walk in as a, you know, a mm. bunch of women or, I mean, we've got men on our team as well, but if we go in without the authentic understanding of what that group need, and this is the same for youth, you know, we look at youth and why do we need youth on these panels and youth having a voice? Because they get it and they understand when they hear from people who are of a similar age because they can see that they understand how it works. So I think that's just a really important part and it's very much been the message of the last two days at the conference is that co-design model and it's it's really imperative to success. Renee, you're on fire. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground and very well spoken. Moving forward in the future, what what's happening for you? What are some exciting things coming up? I'm very excited that I'm going to hopefully be coming back for the International Mental Health Conference. Yes. Because and I'm going to get to actually face-to-face meet some of the other ambassadors, which is cool. really fantastic. And that's all been set up by the wonderful Lorian, which has been awesome. And look... I am really hoping to spend this year really developing out. I'd like to take what I've got and really develop some digital courses for it, not digital programs, but a course for someone who wants to do this on their own that can follow step by step how to do it, but do it by themselves. Because I know if they're anything like me, I'm a bit of a control freak and I like to have ownership over these things. Um, So I really want to develop those and then hopefully next year, take a little bit of time off and really explore that and see how I can make a difference in that space because I've got the passion and I need to turn it into something that can actually make sure that this change happens because I just think it's it's so desperately needed and we're at the right time and we need to grab hold and we need to make these changes happen so that the statistics start changing. Well, I think you're definitely the right person for the for the role. You're doing a fantastic job. Your passion is infectious. Tell us, Renee, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, they can absolutely get in touch with me at my website, which is thinkeffective.com.au. <laughs> and pretty much everywhere on there has got all the links for my emails and phone numbers. And on socials, if you just look up Think Effective Consultancy on Facebook, LinkedIn, Insta, all those sorts of things, you'll find me. Renee, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it and keep up the great work and I can't wait to hear more about what you're up to. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciated your time. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.